I'm just looking around the room and um, I'm reminded of when I teach at Spirit Rock and maybe some of you have been there. It's a very, very large meditation hall and, you know, we, we could actually sit about 500 people in there if people were sitting on chairs. And during the retreats, we have about 100 people who are sitting retreats and people have their zafus and cushions on the, on the floor. But during the Dharma talk, everybody retreats back to the chairs. <laughs> and I'm just <laughs> seeing this happening a little bit here. But it, at Spirit Rock, because it's such a large hall, it means the whole half of the hall is vacated. <laughs> and it's like you're speaking to these people out of the peanut gallery. <laughs> But it also seems to be um, somewhat of a consequence of our aging population as well. <laughs> I notice that. But then there are always the younger people, you know, at Spirit Rock who are still kind of filling the, the Zafu. So it doesn't feel like it's completely vacated. <laughs> but of course it is more comfortable sitting in chairs. So we've almost finished with our first day of the retreat. And there are people here in the room who this is actually your very first day of sitting a silent retreat. And I mean, I really think that's something, you know, to be celebrated in some way, to get through <laughs> the, the rigor of a first day of a retreat. And those of you who have been practicing, who have been on retreats before, or, you know, who we even called oldies, you know, our oldie, old, old yogis, <laughs> we know the first day or the second day, you know, it is a bit grueling to just sit and walk and stay with uh, the difficulties that arise in the mind and the body, but just to stay present and to stay present and stay present and keep going with it. So you haven't left yet, those of you who this is your first time, so I congratulate you. And everybody, you know, because we never know, you know, how it's going to be when we come into a retreat and we sit and turn inward and take a look. What's here? You know, where am I? How am I? Who am I today? <laughs> you know, and to sit with all of that information that's coming in, whether it's welcomed information or not so welcomed information. And it's always a little bit of both. And been hearing about that today in the groups as well. You know, it's a whole mix. This whole mix of experience because our experience is constantly changing. It's constantly new. We're constantly entering into the new into territory where we have never gone before. Every moment is a new, fresh experience. We have never gone into this moment before. And there's a part of us that is actually very aware of that. So we have certain strategies that keep us a bit pulled back <laughs> I always felt for my own, myself and my own experience, for a long time I felt like I was moving forward with the break on. 
Like I was just, I, wa- I knew I was moving forward, but I just had my foot on the brake so it just wouldn't go <laughs> too fast or maybe I was able to have some control over where the uh, vehicle might veer. But it's very, can be very much that feeling, like, yeah, you, it's, it can be kind of a mixed feeling as well where you really want to go forward, you want to dive in, and yet there's that not so fast, you know, not so fast. And yet we find that that not-so-fast doesn't really have a huge amount of influence because life has its own way. The universe takes its own form, takes its own shape, whether we like it or not. And we all know that. We all experience that. And so we are asked to step in, to step into the flow to step into the stream. And in the Buddhist tradition, the phrase or the, the, the name for awakening, when one awakens to the way things are, is often called entering the stream. When one enters the stream or stream entry. And I love that metaphor because it's really like that in a way of this kind of you, you become the stream, you become the flow, one with, one with the flow of experience, the flow of life, where there's no more pushing and pulling and, and resisting and, and grasping and preferring and this whole kind of manipulative behavior that we find ourselves in so much of the time, wanting to control wanting to control our experience. But you know, at some point, and if many people in this room know this, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. We just start to feel the pain of our resistance. We feel that the constriction and the contraction of the pulling back, of the holding back. And finally, it's not worth it. It's not worth that pain any longer. And this really helps to facilitate the, the letting go, that release. It's called the pure heart's release. Just we let go. found this lovely um, kind of these Zen, this Zen story, which is sometimes called Zen koans. Koans in, mean kind of a uh, spiritual question or a contemplation. And this one goes, it is said a great Zen teacher asked an initiate to sit by a stream until he heard all the water had to teach. After days of bending his mind around the scene, a small monkey, I like monkey stories, a small monkey happened by and in one seeming bound of joy splashed about in in the stream. And the initiate wept. Now, why did the initiate wept, weep, <laughs> wept? <laughs> why did the initiate weep? This monkey comes along. He, the, 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 the disciple is sitting there and contemplating and meditating and trying to, you know, be with the stream and listen to the stream and get the teachings that the stream is teaching it. And then the monkey comes and just jumps in 
splashes around, yapping, having a great time. And the initiate wept. The monkey showed the disciple that he had really been missing the point. He missed the point, you know, sitting by the side, just sitting back, trying to receive, trying to understand what the stream is teaching. And in that recognition, in that realization, just the, oh, the kind of the giving up, the letting go, that that isn't the way. One has to enter. One has to jump in to it. We have to get wet, so to speak. (laughs) And I think that really here, you know, that's the invitation. And it's interesting that, you know, last night I began with a story, another monkey story from India, which really has played on my mind for some time, you know, that jumping into the well and, you know, how in a way we need that, we need to jump in, to jump in, see what happens when we jump in. And very much here, here, that is the invitation when we come to silent retreat, particularly, because it is more of a, a commitment, more of a direct intention to really look, to really pay attention to what's happening. It's so much easier in our daily life, in our ordinary life, to get distracted. There are numerous distractions, as we know. Sometimes it's talked about that the, the, the stream of the, the mainstream, the mainstream, the cultural mainstream, is going in a different direction. It's flowing in a different direction than the Dharma stream and the stream of the spiritual teachings and the spiritual understandings. And so we can feel like we're being pulled into that other stream, the mainstream. And yet there's ways that it doesn't feel right or doesn't feel comfortable. There's something we start to, to feel there's something wrong, something's off. And so then something pulls us, as I spoke about last night, we get pulled into the Dharma stream, into the meditation, into the spiritual teachings. And yet as we do that, we see that actually we need to tumble a lot, get caught in a lot of the uh, eddies and the swirls and the the waves, all the different things that happen when we jump into the stream. Not always so easy. But here, we are inviting that. The teachings invite that. The practices invite that. Because if we're really going to pay attention to our present moment experience, that willingness in itself is already a letting go. You have to already be willing to let go to even begin something like this. But as you do that, then you begin to see all the ways that it's hard to really let go. To really let go. What does that mean? What does that look like? This story of the monkey jumping into the stream 
reminded me of those times that often, usually in New Zealand, when I'm in New Zealand, because they're, they're, the, the, the New Zealanders are very earthy. It's kind of like Canadians. You know, you're very earthy, you know, very close to the earth. And my friends there, you know, just love to swim in the cold rivers. You know, and so wherever wherever you are, if there's a river, somebody's going to be stripping off and jumping in, you know, and just kind of really getting refreshed by that wonderful water. But those of us, like myself, <laughs> who's a little bit more urban, <laughs> a little more of a city person, you know, um, it's not what I'm used to, you know, just jumping into cold water and you know, I could be a little bit more in my head about it. You know, well, oh, it's a little cold, and oh, it's going to be wet. <laughs> I'm going to get all wet, you know. <laughs> you know, all the, the ways that I can start thinking about it. You know, the thinking about, no, why it's not a good idea. <laughs> why it's not a good idea. And then create that, that separation you know, cut myself off from that, you know, really invigorating, um, nourishing experience of just jumping in the cold water, which I have done a few times, you know, and it's, and it's really quite remarkable. And that feeling of, will I, won't I, will I, won't I, oh, should I, shouldn't I, <laughs> you know, and we go through that kind of that whole kind of thinking about it, you know, I mean, obviously, sometimes it's a very good idea to think before you jump. Certainly not advocating this as a strategy that works in all situations. <laughs> it is important to be thoughtful, to be thoughtful about what we are entering into, what stream we are jumping into. So this is not an invitation to defy our wisdom and our understanding about the natural laws and the ways of things. But yet there are these times, these moments, when we know that this is going to be great. You know, if I could just do it, if I could just get myself to make that jump, to take that leap. And I think we've all been, you know, in situations like this around the, the, the rivers or the, the, the journeys or, you know, where you want to just forge ahead and, and be brave and be courageous and go past your sense of limitation and the way that you think of yourself and believe the beliefs you have about yourself. So we, in order to do this, in order to, to enter into the Dharma stream in this way, we do need to get out of our heads. All this thinking, this thinking, thinking, thinking about things, you know, about, well, is this going to be comfortable, or am I going to like this, or is this good for me, or, you know, it's like, you know, just here in the meditation, you just sit. We just say, sit with what's happening. Stay here. Stay present. When you're walking, just stay with what's happening. See if you can open to the experience, to your experience, to yourself in a full way. And if not, really looking at what is interfering, what is the obstacle, what is the uh, limitation here, and just becoming more understanding, more aware of ourselves to see what is actually going on. This is the way that we begin to learn we begin to grow, we begin to discover about ourselves. 
So we're really, when we say get out of our heads, we're talking about really letting go of these preferences and our beliefs and our ideas and our constructions, the way we think about things and have built up things, our stories about ourselves and other people and our life and our world, and how, how much the, the tendency is, and we certainly see that when we first come to practice and we, we start to sit down and we look at our own mind. We just see that it's just, you know, the mind is just wanting to dictate everything, dictate all of reality, as if it knows, as, as if it's really connected to the way things are. And more and more, and people have been speaking about this, we just start kind of not really listening to it in the same way. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, just going on, chattering, 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 chattering. And we begin to learn some methods or some techniques for how to pull the attention away. And as someone said today, not energize those thoughts, not give energy to those thoughts. And so the practice is practice of returning. You know, here today, beginning with the body, this first foundation of mindfulness that the Buddha teaches, this first way to direct the mindfulness into the body, the breath in the body, so that we can begin to ground our attention here. We have some direct contact with something real, the sensations of our breath and and that, that movement of life happening in the body, the different sensations that move through the body. They're, they're real, and they're here, and they're now. And we can turn our attention towards those sensations and those experiences as a way to redirect, to interrupt that very strong momentum of the thoughts, of the thinking. Not yet, we may not yet know that our thoughts are not connected with reality. That may be something that, you know, as we continue to practice, we start to really wake up to. For now, just take my word for it. (laughs) If you don't believe it yet, just take my word for it. Those thoughts are not connected with reality. They come about as a way to help us understand or give some context to understand reality, but there's a lot of um, misses. <laughs> it's not always doesn't always hit the mark. <laughs> maybe about what would you say? Maybe three percent or four know, percent of the thoughts hit the mark. So we have to take the rest with a grain of salt, you know. And so now we're just kind of redirecting, redirecting the attention so that we're not continuing to energize that particular way of understanding or knowing our experience because we find that it can be very distracting, very misleading, and very painful if we continue to identify with the world of our own thoughts. I remember um, the very, very first time that I gave a Dharma talk many years ago, um, I was put in a position where the very first Dharma talk I gave, I had to give to 100 people. 
and um, on a retreat. And that was really unfortunate because I was quite frightened. <laughs> and, and it just seemed like a big leap. But I did it, you know. And I actually, I haven't told maybe anybody this, maybe a few people this, but I cried for half an hour before I gave the talk. And I actually, it was actually good. I realized that that was great to cry because it really loosened me up and kind of freed me up a lot. It kind of, you know, just it just really worked a lot with the 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 the, the constriction and kind of the the like, oh my God, am I really going to do this energy? You know, and just kind of cried. And then what? Well, by the time I got out there, I was a bit, you know, like a like a damp cloth. So <laughs> it was a little bit easier to give the talk. But I did it. You know, I, I, I did that. I took that first step. I dove in. But um, what was interesting was that after I finished, and I actually the title of the talk was um, called The Wisdom of Insecurity, <laughs> which I think I only got later, <laughs> you know, the, kind of the, the humor in that. <laughs> and... Um, this this man that I knew, uh, who was a very well-known psychiatrist, a Buddhist psychiatrist, who had been sitting the retreat, um, who had written books, he came up to me after my talk, after I was finished, and and he just I knew I knew him somewhat, we were somewhat friendly, and he came up and he just he just said he said um, I want you to know something. He said I just came back from a Buddhist conference with about, I sat in a room with about 15, 20 Buddhist scholars for four days. And he said, you know more than any of them. And I thought that was so interesting. I mean, it was at my very first talk because it just showed me, just right like that, that there's nothing better than sitting on the cushion and looking at your own mind for a long time. By that time, I had been sitting very you know, long time, lots of three-month retreats, uh, uh, six-week retreats. I'd spent a couple years in, in, on retreat and in silence by that time, if I added up all the dates. And I just got it. It's like there's a, this huge difference between the intellectual knowledge or the scholarly knowledge and that sense of I know how it is. I know the way things are. And the direct experience, the direct looking at our own minds, our own heart, our own direct experience to see what's true there. What can we discover there? And it may not even be something that we can so finely articulate, you know, put so well into words and, you know, great kind of uh, model, a body of teachings or body of understanding. But there's a knowing. There's a connection. There's a process of transformation that is occurring. And this is what matters. This is getting out of our head, <laughs> getting out of our head into the water, into the stream, into the ocean, so that we're experiencing the flow of life directly. 
not through our thoughts about it, not through our stories about it, not through what we think about it all, but that direct contact, that direct hit with now and now and now. Another metaphor that I often hear is is that it's like the difference between uh, uh, tasting the menu and eating the food, right? Sometimes we can find, we'll go, and I see, I see this for myself, you know, going into a restaurant and you're looking at the menu and you go, oh, no, I know what that's like, I know what that's like, I know what's that like, and you're just kind of nixing out, you know, all these things, that, oh, I don't like that, I don't want that, I don't like that. Who knows? <laughs> what would happen? Not that we would do this necessarily. That's not how we choose things off menus. But who knows what those things taste like? What it would actually be like if we were presented with that plate of food and had the direct experience of eating, eating, tasting, swallowing, digesting, really the whole experience rather than our thought about it. I know that. I know that. But this is what the mind does, the ego mind, this, this mind that thinks it knows. It, has, it, it, it takes positions. It, it has conclusions. This is the way it is. Right? We can see how we would do that with so many things. You know? um, for example, sleep. You know, being sleepy. So many people, you know, it's not uncommon for there to be sleepiness on a first day of a retreat. But yet, there's so much resistance to it. There's often so much resistance. And I can remember this in my years of uh, practice in, the, in those early days where I, I hated when I got sleepy. It was like the sleepy experience was absolutely off the charts of what's okay. I had no space to allow it. And so I would just be in such a fight, so much aversion and struggle and I don't like it and what it means about me and I'm not a good meditator and, you know, and what's wrong with me and, you know, I'll never get anywhere and, you know, all of this, this whole kind of story about being sleepy. And some of you have heard, heard this story but I, the, that all changed when I sat with um, the teacher Upandita Sayadaw, who was a very uh, high master in the Burmese tradition, a Bur- Burmese teacher. And I sat a, a ten-day ten retreat with him, and he said, you can only sleep four hours a night, and you practice 20 hours. You wake up, you sit and walk and sit and walk 20 hours, you can sleep four hours. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that really pushed me over the edge. And what happened was, of course I was going to be sleepy. <laughs> I don't get, I'm not good on four hours of sleep. <laughs> That's not where I'm going to get, you know, be my best at my practice. But what I really learned was that's where I came into a wise relationship with sleep because I no longer fought it. I no longer struggled against it. What I did instead was I actually worked with the skillful means around it, which just tried to bring some energy when the energy would drop, which would 
happen through many cycles of the day. The energy would drop. I would apply the methods that I was being encouraged to apply. I would just take deeper breaths or sit up a little straighter or open my eyes or do standing meditation or I'd walk faster during the walking meditations. You know, really work with my energy. And then when I when I just really couldn't bring the energy up, I would just bring my attention to the smallest little contact of my breath that I could, just to have some contact with awareness so that I wouldn't completely fall into deep sleep. And just that contact with the breath at the very barest and tiniest contact was so pleasant. I, I started feeling this bliss, actually. I started feeling this incredible pleasure at just that kind of that, that experience of being somewhat low energy, but just some awareness there and just kind of drifting like, like if I was floating on the waves of an ocean, just this very gentle drifting back and forth, the breath in and out and in and out, but just not having to do anything more than just the touch of the breath. And I, I, I started thinking, wow, this is, a, this is a doorway into bliss. And here I'd been resisting and rejecting and avoiding and struggling and fighting, and everything changed. It was no longer a problem. It was no longer anything that I thought was wrong or just a cycle of the day. It was just a cycle of the day. And then I would rest when it was time to rest, taking some time to lie down in the day to rest, but always keeping some connection with that point of awareness so that I wasn't just dropping into deep sleep and see if I could keep my practice going, which is what Upandita wanted us to do. Just stay awake, right? Stay awake. That was the practice. See if you could stay awake 20 hours, (laughs) you know? So, you know, another invitation, you know, pushing that edge, you know, pushing the edge of what I believe, what I believed about myself. Just another funny part of that story is I was staying in a room with two other women, and um, they, this one woman who was really a warrior in her practice, she would set her alarm, I think it was for um, 2 o'clock in the morning or something like that. You know, she'd go to bed at 10 and get up at 2. And then her friend who was with her um, clearly wasn't quite as much of a warrior as she was. And so this, the woman whose alarm would go off at 2 o'clock, she would jump out of bed and then she would jump and grab her friend and she would shake her friend. <laughs> get up, get up, get up. It's time to practice. And, you know, it was such, it would happen like every, every night. And I felt so bad for the, for the woman who was being like, way, you know, shaken out of her sleep by this warrior, you know, that it's time to practice. And, you know, I knew, I knew it was her karma, you know, to, to be on this retreat. So I had to, to let go of my worry for her. I'm sure, I'm sure she got a lot of benefit. But I was glad I wasn't the one she was. <laughs> So, you know, just uh, we, 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 we push. We, we don't push, but we, we explore that edge of our beliefs, of what we think is true, of what we think is possible, how our mind is creating these certain 
conceptual ideas about our own capacity, who we are, who others are, what's happening here, what this is all about, and be whole, what, the, what the mind comes up with needs to be held so lightly. It's not that we annihilate those thoughts or we try to get rid of those, those thoughts or even try to <coughs> quiet those thoughts. We just very gently turn away. We just turn our attention away, and we don't give energy to them. We, of course, recognize them, recognize that they're there, use some discernment whether there's any value in that thought or not, and then just gently turn away. Because really, about 95 96% of our thoughts, first of all, are pretty repetitive. We've heard them before. We've been there before. We've, we've, we're just going around the block. <laughs> seeing the same kind of landscape again and again and again. And, and I'm always, when I talk about that, I'm always, always reminded of one of my teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, this Tibetan, wonderful, wonderful Tibetan teacher who would always say, only think about something three times. <laughs> After the third time, let it go. <laughs> You know that if it's coming around three times, <laughs> that it's probably not something that's going to get resolved through the mind. You know, let it go. I do heed that practice because I do see things coming around <laughs> again and again and again. Let it go. Not let it go completely, but just see what's going on, feeling into the body, what's the emotion, what's the feeling, what's happening, that this is coming around so many times. Do we really have to keep listening to that broken record? So we do it, this was my experience with sleep, this whole concept I had around sleep. We might do it with pain, how we experience, how we think about pain in the body. We have this whole concept or whole idea about pain, and I, it's going to feel like this, it's going to be like this, it's going to mean this about me, this is going to happen to me. But what happens if we actually start to enter into it just a little bit and see what is the actuality, what is the reality of that painful sensation? I'm talking about body pain. What is it? What, what actually happens when I let my awareness just touch it? Not like dive in and, you know, have to just be in the agony of the unpleasant pain, but just touch it. See what happens. If I'm noticing that I'm really pulling back or really resisting, just a little bit, and then find out, then make some kind of decision, some kind of choice about what needs to happen next. But oftentimes that the barrier of our own mind comes down and says, I know about that already. I, I know it's going to be like this. I know it's always going to hurt, and I know that it's going to lead, if I keep, you know, if I, if I feel it, my leg's going to fall off. Or, you, know, you know, all different kinds of things that we might make up. Sometimes, sometimes we're making up you know, the mind is, is constructing something that is really fearful, you know, that we believe, that we, we start to imagine a whole scenario 
that we take to be true. And, and it really creates a lot of fear and a, and a lot of constriction. And it may be that we haven't really investigated to find out if the way that our mind is making up things is actually true. Is it connected with reality? Is there some, some um, accuracy in that? Or am I just afraid of what my mind is making up? It's a wonderful um, little story that I think I tell on all retreats about the, this ancient uh, cave painter was in his cave painting this wonderful mural on the wall and he was painting a tiger and he was painting and painting and the tiger was becoming more uh, beautiful, more accurate, more real and at one point when he was just getting towards the end he looked at it and he said, oh my god, a tiger and he ran out of the cave. started to really believe it was a real tiger. And I love that because I just call it painting tigers on the wall. And I see how my mind just paints tigers on the wall, on the, on the wall of my consciousness. And I get frightened. Oh, my God, it's real. <laughs> but maybe I haven't really taken a look. Maybe I don't know for sure. You know, it's not to say that what's being painted isn't real. It doesn't have some connection with reality. And we know plenty of times it actually does, and we need to run the other way. So again, it's we're, we're wanting to make some kind of discernment before we act, before we react. I was... Um, there, the, the Emmy Awards were just given for the TV programs, and I just happened to look at one of the articles that were written about the different people who won the different um, uh, uh, awards. And there's this one um, series that was created uh, for, for the public uh, PBS, Public Broadcasting Service, which has very, very good quality uh, shows on. And this is, uh, there was a, a series created called uh, uh, Downton Abbey about the upper class and the, uh, the, 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 the servants in a very, very, very Im- big, immense, um, uh, uh, pa- what do you call them, palace? What do you don't call them, palaces? Castle? Castle in England, yeah. And this man who wrote the series is called Julian Fellows. And this, and this is what he said. Um, I think I'm more fearful of the future now, he said, sipping his tea. I always feel that there's some giant hand about to lean in and snatch it all away from me, saying, this wasn't meant for you. Because he built, he grew, his success grew. He started off as a very uh, unknown writer, and then he became very famous through this series. And he said, he just, he's so fearful that um, somebody's, something's going to come in, snatch it away, saying, this wasn't meant for you. And he's married to this woman, he says, Emma, who says, Emma has this completely different quality of living in the present. It's just been very helpful for to me to live with someone who doesn't think, oh my God, what if it all stops tomorrow? (laughs) Of course, it's absurd to live your life dreading some unspecified disaster. (laughs) He said his anxiety went from, will I ever make it to, might I lose everything? 
a very successful man who has it all right now. But even then, you know, that the way the, the mind will create some kind of fear around the loss of all of that that he's gained. So this, the mind, this mind. And then sometimes we, you know, just spend time trying to analyze or figure things out or, or trying to fix things or solve things. You know, there's a problem. You know how the mind will just go round and round and round, thinking again that we're going to find some kind of solution for our conflict or for our problem by thinking about it, by analyzing it, by figuring it out. And somebody, too, today was talking about the stress when that happens. You know, somehow I'm going to be able to, I want to resolve this, but it just makes me feel more and more stressed, you know. And then some people talking about the pain in the neck and the pain in the shoulders and, you know, just how we start to carry that stress in our body through this trying to resolve our issues, resolve our problems. This is a a story from the Buddha, one of his discourses that came down to us, uh, which exemplifies this. And the Buddha really makes his point in this this, um, metaphor, in in this simile. He says, suppose a man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison and his friends brought a surgeon to treat him. And the wounded man said to the surgeon, I won't let you pull out this arrow until I know whether the man who wounded me was a noble one, a Brahmin, a merchant, or a worker. He said, He said to the surgeon, I won't let you pull out this arrow until I know the name and the clan of the man who wounded me, and uh, whether he was tall or short or middle height, whether he was dark, brown, or golden skin, whether he lived in a village, a town, or a city, whether he used a longbow or a crossbow, whether the feathers were from a vulture, from a crow, from a hawk, from a peacock, or from a stork, Or what kind of arrow? (laughs) Was it hoof-tipped, curved, barbed, calf-toothed, or an oleander? oleander? Or was the bowstring made of fiber, of reed, sinew, hemp, or or bark? Or if the sinew of the shaft, I mean, the Buddha is just, he's really making his point here, right? The guy's dying. He was poisoned, (laughs) and the guy's dying. Or if the sinew of the shaft was from an ox, a buffalo, a lion, or a monkey. And, and, so, and, and the Buddhist says, you know, if we, if we wait till we have it all figured out, we're going to be dead. <laughs> <laughs> he said, this is not beneficial. <laughs> And yet sometimes, you know, we laugh because we can see how this is actually what we try to do. You know, we want to know all the details that he said this or she did that or they were there and, and he was here, and, but I did this and she did that and I reacted like this and they reacted like that. And you know, going over and over and over. It gives me a headache. I'm actually feeling like a little bit of a headache as I talk about all this. 
you know, because I can just feel how the energy just goes up, and I want the energy to come down. It's like bring it back down, come become ground. I want to become grounded again. Get my feet back on the earth. Bring the breath back in to my body. Feel the life flowing again. Feel the sense of present moment connection. What's happening now? What's happening now? What's happening now? Because the mind is just trying to regurgitate all that's happened in the past and all that we imagine is going to happen in the future. It's just all imagining. All the way we've constructed the past through very pulling out very particular details amidst myriad, infinite details. But we just pick out a few that we notice that we were impacted by, and then we construct a whole view, whether it's a situation, whether it's ourselves, whether it's another person, whether it's the world, whether it's the universe. Our world, we call this our world view. This is our world view. But can we come down, you know? That's a big bubble, like big balloon. You know, in those cartoons, you see the, you know, the big balloon where the, the, the mind is talking and thinking. But let's put a little pin in that balloon and come down. And in some ways, that's what we're doing here. We're, we're coming down, landing. We call it arriving. We're arriving our feet on the ground, our attention in our body, know where we are, knowing how we are, knowing what's happening now, in this moment, perhaps without the elaborate construction of understanding through the intellect, through the mind. What happens then is that we are brought into a new kind of understanding. It's a whole new way of understanding our life, ourselves, other people, the world, the universe, not necessarily through the conceptual mind. The conceptual mind becomes a support for this understanding, but is not the leader It is not the master. Some say it's a servant. It's a servant to understanding. This understanding that arises from direct experience, from direct awareness, from contact, here and now. Sometimes this brings us into the realm of poetry, or song, or dance, or just the communing with nature, just watching a bird, or seeing the grass sway in the field, or looking at the golden light, just reveling at the colors in the sky, or the shapes of the clouds, noticing things on the ground that we haven't seen before, hearing sounds in ways we've never heard them, 
the senses, our senses start to wake up because we're, we're not clouded over by the mind. We're actually here, so the sounds are here with us. The, the sights and the smells and the tastes and the feel on our skin and the recognition of what's moving through the mind, our thoughts and our images and our ideas. We can see them. We can recognize them. When there's this strengthening of this connection with our mindful awareness, when there's more of a sense of the resting back, or, or sometimes we say being located in the awareness, being seated in the awareness rather than in the intellect. In the Western world, you know, educated in the educated societies, we have learned to be seated in our intellect, in our conceptual, the conceptualization of the way we understand things. And so in some ways we're relearning, we're relearning, kind of shifting our attention in a new, in a new way, in a new direction, into the openness of the silence, of the stillness, of the spaciousness, where words don't have so much to say. <laughs> words may come, and we can revel in the way words interplay with experience, but they don't become the conclusion of the way things are. We do, and we don't land in that conclusion, I know this is how it is. But there's the quality of openness, the openness which comes from the awareness itself, comes from consciousness itself, which is open. Consciousness or awareness does not take positions. It is not fixed. It is not static. That's what we mean by open, open-minded. When we're open-minded, we haven't, we haven't solidified our views and our opinions about how things are. We're open to discovering and exploring new dimensions, new realms of experience, new possibilities. Some say this is a, a childlike quality like the child who, who's just coming of age where the world is exploding before them and there's just all this curiosity and joy if the child is given that freedom to explore. The way we, we, in some ways, return to that, that beautiful, open, awake, energized quality of curiosity and interest and connection and discovery. And it's not just the discovery as, we, as, as, as adults. We're not just discovering the external world. But in meditation, we can turn that, that interest and that curiosity and that uh, wonder inward towards our own mind and our own body and our feelings and our experience and see what we can discover there.
And yet it seems that the first thing, and the Buddha says too, the first thing is this grounding the attention, letting go of these thoughts, using this method, using the technique that we are practicing here, this mindfulness of the body today, and, and very gently disengaging, very gently disengaging from that very powerful momentum of thought. And see what happens as we start to kind of just cut that, that thread a little bit, cut that uh, security, that security thread, and just land more and more in the, in the unfamiliar present moment. Just this, the breath, the body, the, the, different, the different experiences that happen, even the sleepiness, the pain in the body, the restlessness, the anxiety, the, the boredom, whatever it is, just that, that too. That's all part of it too. It's not like when we cut that thread, then we sort of are in this kind of sublime, you know, kind of ecstatic, rapturous, rapturous experience, it means we're here with all of it, with the 10,000 joys, we say, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, that is life. We land in the human experience. We're landing in the human experience, which I avoided for a long time. I didn't want to be in the human experience. I wanted to be somewhere else. <laughs> somewhere else that I could hopefully fabricate that would be much more enjoyable than <laughs> having to be really here. Spent a long time fabricating my experience. But I don't do that anymore because now I know that it's actually very painful to be that far away from myself, to live in a parallel universe, (laughs) one that is constructed from my own mind (laughs) that has no basis at all in any kind of reality. (laughs) I don't think that, um, it's probably not a very safe place to be. (laughs) And so coming back, home, coming back home, coming back here, actually is the place of safety, is the place of true security, is the place of uh, true, the true, the, the true meeting with what's real and true. John O'Donohue, this wonderful Irish poet, says, I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. I would love to live as a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. And it seems that's what happens 
is that we live with more surprise. And when you think about it, it has to be like that. How could it be any different? Because the only time that we would not be living with surprise is if we think we already know. We already know the way things are. I already know who I am. I already know how things are going to go. I already know who my partner is. I already know whatever it is that we're concluding and taking a position about. So this is the invitation. We're just starting, you know. We're just starting to to cut that little thread, that security that we hold on to because somehow we think we're going to be better off. But there's a part of us that really knows. We already know this or we wouldn't be here. We already know this. We may not know it in a way that we can actually articulate it to ourselves or talk about it with another person, but in a very still and quiet recess of our own heart, of our own being, we know this. Because otherwise you would not be here. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to end with one last little fable that I laughed at when I found this today. It's a Chinese Zen tale. There was an old woman who had supported a monk for 20 years. One day, she wanted to test his understanding, so she sent a beautiful young girl to deliver his meal to her place. She instructed the girl to embrace the monk and then notice his response. After the girl embraced him, he stood stock still. Later, the old woman went to him and asked him what it was, what it was like when this beautiful young woman embraced him, and he replied, like a withered tree on a rock in winter utterly without warmth. Furious, the woman threw him out and burned down his hut, exclaiming, how could I have wasted all these years on such a fraud? <laughs> so don't get misled <laughs> what this practice is about. This practice is about living about living, and that means all of it, all of it. Let's sit quietly for just a minute. <laughs> 